So it's Trinity Sunday. And what we're going to do, uh, Lord willing, is the next few Sundays we're going to talk about the Trinity. And we are going to use uh, someone else as our guide, not myself. We are going to use uh, Gregory of Natsianzas. And actually, if you would like to read along, this is a nice edition, translation, of Gregory of Natsianzas, five orations. And these are five orations on the Trinity. And so we'll use them as our guide. Uh, our primary reading will actually be Scripture. His primary reading is Scripture, too. And so we are going to use him, essentially, as a guide for some of the material as we read Scripture. Now, Gregory of Nazianzus, if you are familiar with the history of Christian theology or Christian history, you probably have heard his name. If you think about the country of Turkey, which is roughly of this shape, right? Here's the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Here's Turkey. Here's Greece over here. And it connects right there where Istanbul slash Constantinople is. Gregory of Nazianzus is known as one of the Cappadocian fathers. All right? These are three individuals that lived right there, essentially. These are three bishops. These are three men that are generally credited as some of the most important theologians in the early church. Gregory's dates, just in case you're wondering, is he was born roughly about 330 right, and died at, in the year 390. Gregory of Natsianzus was bishop of several cities, um, Natsianzus being one of them. He was actually born in Natsianzus, which is why he's named Gregory of Natsianzus. <laughs> Which is important, because there's lots of actually important other Gregories. And I mentioned the Cappadocian Fathers. These are three bishops who are all friends or relatives that live in this, this particular um, location. Not in the same city, just in the same region of the Roman Empire. There is Basil, Basil the Great. You might have heard of him. And there is Gregory of Nyssa. So even amongst the Cap Cappadocian Fathers, there's two Gregories. And so you have to go... Gregory, the Cappadocian father. Which one? Oh, specifically Gregory Nazianzus. All right. After his life, he became known as the theologian. He wrote extensively and was a highly educated kind of fellow. So he was, he was born right in Nazianzus and, and grew up there. His father was actually also a bishop in the church. And uh, he was born roughly 330. At about age 20, he goes off to Athens, where he meets Basil, the one I mentioned earlier. And he studies poetry and public speaking. He was a poet and an orator. And these are specifically orations published on the, the Trinity. He didn't want to be bishop. It's one of those kind of situations. Um, he didn't really want to be bishop. He was just kind of cajoled into it. He was bishop of one town, and then they, they chased him out, and he wasn't too upset about it because he didn't really like being a bishop anyway. Town named Sassima. Then they made him, brought him into Constantinople where he was a bishop. And then they eventually, some people, caused ruckus and chased him out of there too. So he went back to ultimately Nazianzus. He really wanted to be more, I think, a monk and a student, but ended up being a bishop. So that's Gregory of Nazianzus. Very influential and very readable. Good translations. If you want to, you can, if you just look up Gregory of Nazianzus. All right, five orations. You will find translations for free on the internet. You do not have to buy any sort of public edition. Um, I mean, th these works are 1,600 years old and have been translated into English multiple times. So you can certainly find it. So the way the, or the orations work is you've got five. As I mentioned, they're the five orations. He did many more. 
These are just five that are identified together and function somewhat together. The first oration is really a question, and we'll talk about the first and second orations today. The first oration is about preparing preparation for theology. Or preparation for study. The second one is on God the Father. And that's where we will spend the bulk of our time today. Three and four are on Christ. And as you probably can guess, the fifth one is on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read a little bit from Gregory, but like I said, and even a little bit from Augustine. Um, go ahead. Today, but primarily we'll be reading from Scripture. So, this first oration, which is actually 20, the 27th oration of Gregory, the first thing he's going to basically start with when he wants to start talking about the Trinity is he's going to start talking about, A, who should be talking about this, and in what context should you be talking about this. One thing he wants to establish about theological talk, which I think is a good warning for us, all right? Theological talk is not necessarily something we should be doing all of the time. Uh, if, we, if we might, uh, let's, let's look at uh, Joshua, if you would turn to the book of Joshua. Now, this is Gregory the theologian, all right? And here's Gregory saying, theological dissection. Not something you should be doing all the time. What should you be doing all the time? Because we all, I think, know we should be thinking about God. Does this mean we should be reading systematic theologies all the time? And Gregory's answer is essentially no. If we look at Joshua chapter 1, what should we be doing? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. This is verse 8 of Joshua chapter 1. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then it will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Or turn to Psalm 1. What, how ought the righteous person to be spending all of his time? Psalm number one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Christian's preoccupation of the mind should absolutely be God and should absolutely be the scriptures as an aid to that. should not be theology, yet there is a time for theology. It is something you do have to stop and discuss. And if that's the case, how ought we to do it? Please turn to 1 Timothy. Yes, sir. That is a good question. Can we define theology? We're going to go to 1 Timothy 6 here. 
Well, essentially, theology, as a term, refers, you can mean it one way or another, all right? Strictly speaking, theology means the study of God, all right? Thinking about God. You can think of it specifically as relating to theology is about God. Specifically his person, what he does. And you'll often find books like systematic theology, for example. And these are not, whenever you see a book on systematic theology, it is not about the person of God alone. It always has discussions of the person of God. But it also essentially covers what, do, what does the scripture say about a wide variety of things. What does it say about the nature of man? What does it say about the nature of sin? What does it say about the nature of salvation? The end times. All these things. What does it say about the church? And then, of course, including what is the nature of God itself. What Gregory, I think, is basically saying is, what we're going to sort of read in, in Timothy here, is essentially, should people be thinking of God all the time? Which we might think of theology. And the answer is yes. But he's talking a little bit more specifically. What he's talking about is the act of systemization, systematization, the act of making arguments, the act of dissecting and understanding. In other words, the life should be spent primarily not in dissection of God, but worship of God, essentially, is where he's going to go with this. He didn't quite say it in those words, but that's ultimately what he means. 1 Timothy, if you will. 1 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to a pastor. <clears throat> Timothy. Timothy is one that shows up a number of times in the book of Acts, as we've discussed. Same Timothy. And so here's Paul writing to Timothy, who is functioning as a bishop. And let's start reading in, verses, in verse 4. Actually, let's just start at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who are believing masters must not be disrespected on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things, not just referring to that, but everything before. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Or if you continue down to verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. These are, oh, by the way, all these scriptures today are all uh, quoted or alluded to by, by Gregory. So uh, these are all his choices, just in case you're wondering. Why would Gregory talk about this? Man, especially the way people are, are often trained, man has a tendency to get into an intellectual mode. 
and to parse and spend all of this time parsing and defining and arguing and, and let's let's be nitpicky about this little thing. This is actually a valuable activity people for people to do under certain constraints and in certain areas. Alright? He's not saying this is actually necessarily in all cases bad. But this activity of defining and jumping in and really wrangling about words, all right, and just trying to say what exactly does this mean, must be ultimately constrained. And if you think about the whole of a life that is devoted to God, and if you think about the Venn diagram of what he's describing, of what should our brains be focused on, all right, we should always be focused on the worship of God. And part of it, theology. Part of it, spending time digging in, arguing. Because what men do, and I'm sure you've seen this plenty of times in lots of circumstances, when people get in argumentative modes, all right, it's very hard for them to ponder. All right? When you get in a debate, debate with somebody and you're all, you're, you're all hot in the head and you're like, da, 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 da. no one's thinking at that point. Or at least, I take that back, no one's considering. The person, they're, they're thinking. They're making arguments. They're just trying to fight. If you think about a public debate, the point of a public debate is never for one person to change the other person's mind. That's not why they exist. All right? They're a spectacle or maybe an educational event. They are not some sort of Person A is going to talk to person D and B and change your mind. That's not why they exist. And that's not really how people function. One thing he talks about in the oration is the problem of a lot of people, and especially a lot of heretics that he deals with, have that problem. And he says, we ought to avoid it. And he's ultimately right. One thing he ties to this is the necessity of holiness. All right? Um, I'm going to read, and this will be from uh, his second oration, because the first oration is meant to set up the second oration. I'll read a little bit, and you can tell me what is our context that he's drawing on. Okay? We'll read it piecemeal, and you can tell me. This is uh, the second section here. I eagerly ascend the mount, or, speak truer, ascend an eager hope matched with anxiety for my frailty. What do you think he's probably referring to when he immediately says, I ascend the mount? What's he likely talking about? Hmm? Ascend the mount. Okay, worship. Yes. What context? What biblical event? Where is somebody ascending a mountain? I mean, there's more. There's, There's multiple. Giving of the law is his specific case here. So I eagerly ascend the mount, that I may enter the cloud and company with God, for such is God's bidding. Is any an Aaron? He shall come up with me. He shall stand hard by, should he be willing to wait, if need be, outside the cloud. Is any an Nadab, an Abihu, or an elder? He too shall ascend, but stand further off his place matching his purity. What's the deal with Nadab and Abihu? They offered the strange fire in the tabernacle. And God's response? 
Murder. Not murder. Death. All right? Death. Ex summary execution. Not, is not something you should have done. You came too close to the holy place. All right? You came, on, you came too close to the holy place and you were unholy. Death. Same with ascending the mount whenever you're doing theology. This is essentially what Gregory's saying. Who are you? Are you an Aaron? Then come up with me. Are you a Nadab and a Bihu? You better be careful. You better stand further off, further down the mountain. Is any of the crowd unfit as they are for so sublime contemplation, utterly unhallowed? Let him not come near. It is dangerous. Duly prepared, let him abide below. He shall hear but the voice and the trumpet. True religion's outer expressions. He shall see the mount and smoke with its lightning flashes, warning and wonder to those who cannot ascend it. Is any an evil, untamed beast, quite impervious to thoughts of contemplation and divinity? This is, of course, he's referring to the heretics. He shall not lurk in the woods, baneful and harmful, to pounce out on some truth or utterance and rend wholesome thoughts with his abuse. No, he shall stand still farther off. He shall quit the mount or be stoned and crushed. An evil death for an evil man, seeing that the brutish find real and solid arguments to be stoned. One of his notions is, one of the, really the problems with theological, theological speculation in the public is theological speculation of the public leads to people who have no idea what's going on. We're going to take these ideas and just twist them and use them as weapons. These Christians can't agree on things. All right? Why should I believe in this stuff? They're always arguing about these nitpicky theology stuff. And this was Greg's Gregory of Nazianzus' critique of his opponents. What do they like to do? Well, they just want to go out and they'll go in the marketplace and they'll debate the Trinity. All right? They'll go to the theater and they'll argue about theology stuff. Theology is not for entertainment's sake. Point that he makes. Theology is not for entertainment's sake. Theology is important. A subset of what you're supposed to be doing with your brain, but it is an important subset. It is not for entertainment. And it is not to be taken lightly. It should be something that somebody takes seriously and that somebody takes in a holy manner. There's no good, and as a matter of fact, it's harmful to approach theology wickedly, is his point. This, I think, is good theology. Now, that's prolegomena. How are we doing on time? That's prolegomena. That's getting ready. Let's talk a little bit about God. The major idea, if you want to sum up the second oration. The main thing we're going to say about God is that God, in His nature, is unknowable. Now, I think this is to set up something, right? That the New Testament, for example, talks about. All right. If God, in His nature, is ultimately unknowable, this left, it leaves us in a quandary, right? If you can't know anything about God, because God is so much greater than you, all right you're kind of in a pickle, you might say. So this would be just chapter 3 from the oration. What experience of this have I had, you friends of truth, her initiates, 
her lovers as I am. I was running with a mind to see God, and so it was that I ascended the mount. I penetrated the cloud, the cloud, became enclosed in it, detached from matter and material things, and concentrated so far as might be in myself. But when I directed my gaze, I scarcely saw the averted figure of God, and this while sheltering in the rock, God the Word incarnate for us. Peering in, I saw not the nature prime, inviolate, self-apprehended, the nature as it abides within the first veil and is hidden by the cherubim, but as it reaches us at this furthest remove from God, being, so far as I can understand, the grandeur, or as divine David calls it, the majesty inherent in all created things, he is brought forth and governs. All these indications of himself that he has left behind are God's averted figure. And by averted figure, we should think of God turning his back on Moses. This is what he's referring to. Can Moses look directly upon God? No. Moses must receive a lesser revelation. This is his discussion. They are, as it were, shadowy reflections of the sun and water. Reflections which display to eyes too weak. Because too impotent to gaze at it, the sun overmastering perception and purity of its light. Thus and thus only can you speak of God. Be you Moses, Pharaoh's God, had you reached, like Paul, the third heaven and heard ineffable mysteries, had you even transcended it, deemed worthy of an angel or an archangel's station and rank, for were a thing all heavenly, all super celestial even, far more sublime in nature than ourselves, far nearer to God, its remoteness from him and from his perfect apprehension is much greater than its superiority to our low, heavy compound. What's he saying? One fundamental notion of the nature of God, which we should discuss. All right. If we think of if we think of all that is on a on a on a continuum, there we go. We think of all that is on a continuum. Where do we exist and where does God exist? We're here. And God is here. There is a vast difference between something that is uncreated and ultimately incorporeal and then something that is basically corporeal and created. And as a matter of fact, and this is the last point here, the super celestial beings, right? You take, you take Lucifer himself. You take the archangels. Where are they compared to God? We might think they're over here, but actually they're over here. They fall on a completely different sphere than God is. Even though God is in heaven and they are in heaven, they do not understand God. They cannot apprehend God fully. Just like we cannot. Because ultimately, they, they live, all right, even though they are incorporeal, like God, they still live on this side of the dividing line. They are the created. And He is the uncreated. And the farther you are this way, the less chance you're going to have of understanding the, the actual nature of God in itself. 
they might be closer and they might understand something more, themselves being incorporeal. But still, they're over here. They're not so close. They don't see things as they really are. Because nobody can. I'm, I was about to quote a scripture, but I won't. Because I'm limiting myself to what Greg used. So we'll limit to that. First John. So this is the first notion. All right, Man cannot understand God and himself. That is his primary notion within this particular oration. Can man understand, do we have any knowledge of God? Yes. How do we have knowledge of God? Well, we have knowledge of God through the prophets. And one thing he talks about is, actually, who's the most blessed people in the world? Those to whom God directly spoke. And those through whom he spoke. Why? Because they had access to something that no one else had access to. There was a crossing. All right? There was a crossing from here to here. When Isaiah saw his vision, God was descending to something Isaiah could understand. And that is a blessing. And something that most people don't get. So in, their, so in, in, in Gregory's mind, who are the most blessed people of all time? They are the prophets. They are the people that have seen God. What else? What makes a good doctrine of God? What makes a good theology? All right. Sometimes when people talk about theology, I said it can mean multiple uh, have multiple meanings, multiple levels. Some people say theology in this sense is what's called theology proper, meaning. What is true about God specifically as opposed to some of the other, other stuff? All right. First of all, God is all right, uncreated while well, we are created. That is the first one. Second, God is utterly different. And therefore, something you can't really understand. We know this. This is actually kind of one of the basics of education. All right. If you want to start talking about, let's say, a subject like programming, all right, you can't not solve. You can't start someone in programming on the more the most difficult aspects of programming. You got to start with the really easy stuff. Let's create a little variable and let's change the variable. Good job. You know, you pat them on the head. Good job. That's how you do it. But that's going to work that way in everything we learn, right? Talk about language. You don't start people off reading Shakespeare, all right? Matt sat on, or, or Matt sat on the cat, or whatever. That's what you're going to start with. You're not going to start with Shakespeare. That's just how knowledge works. And part of that means is what you're building up is a context of things that are understandable and always connecting something else, something to something else which is understandable. If you can do that, if you're trying to teach a concept and you can connect it to this other thing which they know, they'll go, oh, I see that. This is one of the values of analogies and, and metaphors. If God is utterly different, there's nothing that we understand and can see that is actually like God. Therefore, in his very nature, what he is actually, and this is Gregory's point, he is 
ununderstandable. He is inapproachable. What's that? He is, in fact, totally other. All right? So these are some things that Gregory here definitely wants to establish. I want to, maybe we'll read it. I don't know if we'll have time to read a little Augustine today. I hope so. Augustine, um, Augustine was alive at roughly the same time as Gregory, but was younger. And so, don't think he ever met Gregory, but he would, he would know Gregory's works later on, given how important Gregory was. We'll see if we have time for that. All right. What you're also going to see, like I said, Gregory's primary source is, um, is Scripture. Right? If you buy that book, footnotes, they've got a footnote for every piece of Scripture he quotes or references. All right? I think in the first two orations, it's close to 200 pieces of Scripture. Right? And they're not that long. It's just, he spends so much time in Scripture, it just sort of comes out. I think is really what's going on there. Um, other things that you might find interesting if you read it, and you totally should, all right? Um, and that is, there is the prime mover argument. Does anybody know this, this particular argument? There is motion. Where does that motion come from? Something had to start it. Okay, well, it's moving. What started it? Well, it's moving. What started it? There must be a first mover. There must be a, well, prime mover. First mover, prime mover means the same thing. This is an argument that goes back at least to Aristotle. All right? This is something he, he brings up. Aristotle being, of course, alive 600 or so 700 years before Gregory. But he depends on this argument. This is uh, an argument commonly used, and it's a good argument, um, commonly used even today in philosophy, or at least should be, if people don't. There's also the argument from design. You will see this a lot. And this is very much, or argument, yeah, you will see this very much in the scripture itself, all right? The argument from design, meaning if you look at the nature of creation, if you look at it, you look at it somewhat and go, "Wow, some of this can be chaotic," but on the whole, it's actually extremely orderly. How does that happen? Is it an accident? No, actually, he brings this up and goes, "No, no, actually, this is just ultimately something that God did." Now, one thing he is going to bring up, and I'll. We'll, we'll do Augustine later, actually. If you would, turn to Ecclesiastes. We'll end with a couple of scripture readings. Actually, given the time, go to Romans instead. Sometimes I'll get chided about going too long, and I don't want to do that. I've heard God called the unmoved mover. Yes. The unmoved mover. That is the prime mover argument. All right? Something's got to move all things, and eventually you've got to get to something that was itself not moved. That did, in fact, move the first thing. Hmm. Uh, Romans 11 is where we're going to go. And this is really on the theme of God's unknowability. All right? Now, I mentioned that he thinks the most blessed people are those who God has spoken to directly. Romans 11 is a good 
example of this. What about Paul? Did God speak directly to Paul? Well, yes, he did. If we look at Romans 11:33, Romans 9 through 11, Paul is trying to figure out the problem essentially of physical Israel. God has worked with Israel for so long. What is going on right now in his lifetime? Many Jews, most Jews have rejected Jesus, yet Israel is his people. How do we understand this? All right? Paul himself was the gospel, was the was the apostle to the Gentiles. All right? The Gentiles needed to hear. Why aren't all the Jews turning? That's Romans 9 through 11. And he tries to figure this out. And Paul, the one to whom Christ spoke directly, he doesn't actually understand everything. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, even Paul, who's received great revelations, must ultimately go, God is, God is inscrutable. 2 Corinthians 12, and this will be our last one. reason we were going to go to Ecclesiastes, you know, Solomon was the wisest man in the Old Testament because God gave him that great wisdom. Where does, where does Solomon end up in Ecclesiastes all of the time? At basically a place of just being stumped and going, I know all these things, but I don't understand some of this stuff. Right? You see that a lot in Ecclesiastes. Um, I don't understand this stuff, but you know, we should just basically, we should live our lives because we don't understand. Let's, let's live our lives. Let's work hard. Let's be righteous. Good advice. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a famous one. This is uh, Paul himself receiving a vision. Or maybe not receiving a vision. Maybe actually being physically transported. That's part of his confusion. He doesn't know as we read. 2 Corinthians 12. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and this is definitely him, it's really clear. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Like, is it just a vision or did he go? I don't know. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I did not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except for my weakness, though I should wish to boast. Really, And it goes on to describe that how God... Because he gave them this, this exceedingly great gift, this vision or this transportation to the third heaven, um, God gave him something to humble him, a thorn in his flesh, to keep him from boasting. Because, hey, you might feel like you should boast if you went to the third heaven. All right? Whether or not you know if you actually went to the third heaven or if it's a vision, still, it's a good reason to boast. And Paul's like, God gave me something. So I wouldn't do that. All right? He gave me a thorn in my flesh. 
You've got this note here in verse 4. And heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He saw things. He doesn't understand everything he says. And he can't even talk about everything he saw and everything he heard. It was just ultimately too much. In this sense, God the Father himself, all right? And we will get some relief from this problem later on. God the Father himself, in his nature, all right? You might know some of the things that he does, and you will know some of the things that he says. But in his nature, you can't understand it. And if you try, you will fail. And if you come up with fancy arguments of understanding it, all you're doing is proving that you're one of those First Timothy 6 people. You're just making arguments and trying to cause a ruckus because there's something wrong with you. That's Gregory's message. At least most of it. Lord willing, we'll continue discussion of the Trinity. We'll focus on Christ next time. One last notion from this where we will read from... Augustine's Confessions, great book. If you want to read along, read Orations 3 and 4 for next time. Like I said, you can find it online, or you can get this. It's a very nice translation with some uh, footnotes. Not footnotes explaining things so much as mostly just footnotes of, here's what he's referencing. This is from Plato's Timaeus, and then here is a hundred things from the Bible. Kind of very useful information. You'll find it useful. Uh, any, Any questions, any thoughts before we dismiss? Yeah. We have the word, and not using a quote from Gregory, all right? We have the word, but we also have the word. No one has seen God, but the Son, all right, has revealed him and knows him. Yes? In the beginning, you said that theology should be a portion of our overall worship. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you could define for us overall so we can understand what is worship. Well, what we're about to do is worship. Worship is, you could say that worship as a whole, at least this is how I define it, would be taking God and applying what God says to all areas of life, all the time. If we are supposed to be, as Paul says, praying constantly, or as Gregory says, thinking about God constantly, what that means is that means taking what is revealed and using that as a guide for all things in life. Don't do that perfectly myself. None of us do. That's the problem of fallen humanity. But I think that's what essentially what he means. He's talking about all of life, essentially, should be infused with the thought of God and what God thinks about things. Um, Theology and the, 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 the hard work of theology, important, but not 
something you should be doing all of the time. Any other thoughts or questions? Right. Well, thank you all, and thank you for you know, letting me read from, um, from Gregory. I find him quite interesting. Uh, Gregory died in 390, and so it would have been before then. I actually don't know exactly the date. Um, they probably actually know the rough date for this, but yeah, so this would be 1,600 years ago. Yeah, a very long time ago. This was written probably around the Council of Constantinople, so the um, essentially the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, very hard to say, which would have been in 380. And so, Greek. Yeah, he was a Greek father, so he wrote all the things in Greek. All right, let's be dismissed. The next door, Jeannie, will you pray for us, please? Go with us today as we worship and open our ears and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name.